0: This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. A very good afternoon everybody. Uh, This is the second in a series of talks we're, we're holding looking at Bible poetry. And Last week we thought about how God is revealed in the Psalms. And today we're thinking about how Jesus is revealed in the Psalms. And of course the Psalms are a very much loved collection of poetry, aren't they? There are probably few among us who have not at some point read, recited or at least sung Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd. It is a favourite and it's one that has been set to many different sorts of music but we want to see that there's an awful lot more to the psalms than just nice poetry although of course they are that and and before we think specifically about what they what they tell us about jesus just want to have a little think about the books themselves you see the psalms the book of psalms as we have it in our bibles is made up of 150 psalms or songs and and they are poet poetry they are praise they are prayers and they are also prophecy, and many different psalms have many different feelings to them, different senses, different tenors, um, and, and perhaps different applications, and we'll think of a few of those. <coughs> a lot of the psalms, majority were written by David, who lived about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Some of them were written by other other men, other godly men, such as Hezekiah and Moses. And these psalms were used in a number of different ways. They were used for congregational worship, they're also used for personal meditation. And of course, just as they were used at the time they were written, so the same applies today. They're used corporately or together, or indeed for individuals on their own. Just for those who are interested, there's a little breakdown there of how the psalms are organised. They're broadly organised into five books, the first written by David. The, set, the second book beginning at Psalm 42. Written by David and by one of the priestly families. The sons of Korah. The third book starts in in Psalm 73. And that was written by another part of the, the priestly order. Asaph um, and others. From Psalm 90 we have Moses and others. And then the, the last book of the Psalms from about 107. We have the Psalms written by David, Hezekiah and others. And in each of those groups of others, if David isn't named, he's very much present. He's very much the the key author in the Psalms. That's just a little feel for how the book book of Psalms breaks down. You you could very much think of it like a book of hymns, a book of poetry um, and, and a book of prayers. But again, there's more to it than that. You see... The Psalms were inspired by God. Why would I say that? Well, a couple of reasons really. Firstly, there is authority given to them within the Bible. There is a great respect given to the Psalms within the Bible. David, writing, says that he was inspired by God to write the Psalms. In 2 Samuel 23, which we looked at in last week's talk and that we've just looked at here in the room... We see that he says the Spirit of God was what made me write the things I wrote. So David openly said that he was inspired. As we shall see over the course of the next half hour or so, we find that David is described by others as a prophet. And we also see that Jesus quotes from the Psalms. So there is considerable authority given to the Psalms from within the rest of the Bible. But what's the proof? Well, the proof or the evidence, if you like, that these these psalms really are written by God and inspired by God is in fulfilled prophecy. And we're going to look at prophecies the psalms made about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Remember that these were written generally a thousand years before Jesus. And yet they are remarkably accurate in describing what would happen to one man one millennium later. Now, no human being could write that with that sort of accuracy. It could only have been written by God. And so that is why we see this as evidence that the Psalms are inspired by God. What that gives us is great confidence. You see, if everything the Psalms have prophesied would come to pass do, then that means we can have confidence that the Psalms that talk about Jesus as a king, a king of the entire world, Well actually they will be fulfilled as well. And that should give us great confidence when we look at life today and we look at the world today. That God's will will be fulfilled. But more on that a little bit later. The first I'd like to look at then is about Jesus' suffering and death. The, The Psalms have an amount to say about that. And there's an interesting comparison here because if you read the gospel records of Jesus' crucifixion you actually find they're extremely factual, there's no real emotion in, in what is clearly an extremely difficult and, and an extremely emotional narrative. That There's very little emotion in there at all. There's also actually very little detail about the suffering of Jesus. It, it's a very matter of fact in the way it's written. And it's fascinating to find that the Psalms, written, of course, so long beforehand, actually provide that detail around the sufferings of Jesus. And they provide the emotion and give us some insight into what Jesus was actually thinking about, what he was feeling as he went through that ordeal. So let's take a look at that. And if you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 22, please. Um, We're just going to take a look through this psalm. and and see what it says and how it relates to Jesus' suffering and to his death. Psalm 22, and we're going to start in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. This is a cry of a man in dire distress. But why would we say it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ? David in his own life had had times of dire distress. Well there's a few clues. The first is at the very end of this same psalm. You come down to verse 31. And we want the very last few words. It says... He has done this. In other words, it has been done. It has been completed. Now, I'm going to put the New Testament references on the screen to save us flicking to and fro too often. But if we look at Matthew chapter 27, then we find the record of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was crucified. And if we go into Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, we read... That about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And it's translated for us then, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's exactly what we read in Psalm 22, verse 1. And if we were to go to the, uh, one of the other gospel records of Jesus, and, and think of Jesus' crucifixion, John chapter 19 and verse 30 We read that when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar. He said it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. he He breathed his last as modern versions will say. So we have those words. My God my God why hast thou forsaken me. That Jesus says on the cross. And then when Jesus dies what does he say. It is finished. Isn't it interesting that Psalm 22 starts with those words. And it ends with he has done this. It is complete. It's exactly the same sense. So I suggest to you that we're in a very good place. If we are saying that Psalm 22. Relates to the suffering of Jesus. In Psalm 22 then. Let's let's have a little bit more of a look. Come with me to verse 7. All they that see me. Laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in Him. So the person writing the Psalm is talking about someone being mocked and being dealt with with scorn. Now, again, if we were to look at our New Testament and have a look at, uh, again, the, 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 letter, the record through Matthew, Matthew 27. Well, again, we have the record when Jesus was on the cross. And what do we read? Matthew 27, verse 39. They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross. And we will believe him. And then look at the words. He trusted in God. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him. For he saith I am the son of God. So in Psalm 22. We have a description. Of those. Leaders of the people. Mocking Jesus on the cross. Reviling him. Dealing with him with scorn and even the words that they would say. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if he will have him. Isn't that remarkable? That the whole scenario has been put there in Psalm 22. Even down to the words that they would say. Let's carry on. We're looking now at verse 14. Um, I would actually recommend, if you have time, look at Psalm 22 in its entirety. Because it is an amazingly accurate and emotive description of Jesus' death. And it is well worth any time you can give to, to read it through at your leisure. But let's go down to verse 14. And what we have in verse 14, and down to verse certainly verse 17, but, but elsewhere in the psalm is a remarkably accurate description of a man being crucified. Let's say We don't really get this in the Gospels. They're a lot more matter of fact. But here in Psalm 22, we do. Let's just read it. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. And it's well known that someone who is crucified, it is very likely that their heart will be be a weakness and will give out because it is put under tremendous pressure and stress by the nature of that torture. Verse 15 My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou hast brought me to the dust of death. And we know that Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. He was thirsty. And you would think, well, of all the things he was going through, why would he be bothered about being thirsty? Again, it's a real feature of someone who's crucified, that thirst, especially crucified um, in in the heat of the day. Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones... They look and stare upon me. And again the crucified man. Is stretched out. So that every last detail of his body. And his bones can be seen. It's a remarkably accurate description of crucifixion. From someone who in all likelihood had never witnessed a crucifixion. And yet that's what we get. We're seeing the sufferings of Jesus. Prophesied in amazing detail. By By the Psalmist, have a look at verse eighteen. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Well, why would he say that? How does that relate to his sufferings? How would that relate to being crucified? Well again, if we compare it to the New Testament, and this time we're in John chapter nineteen. If we compare it to to what Jesus underwent, the similarity is remarkable. John 19 and verse 23 we read. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And here you see John in in his gospel actually points us back. They parted my raiment among them. And for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Isn't that remarkable? And not only that. If you read verse 18 again. Why does it say that they do two things. They part my garments among them. Well, why would they part the garments and then cast lots? That doesn't make sense. You either share things out, or you find a way of giving it to one person. Well, John gave us the answer, didn't he? Because his his clothes, they did part between them. But Jesus' coat was of one piece, and they didn't want to rip it. They didn't want to tear it. So they cast lots for that. Isn't that a remarkably tiny detail? If you think about everything else that's going on in the crucifixion of Jesus... And yet the prophet, as is it in this case, a prophet, writing Psalm 22, picks up that tiny detail that not only did they part his garments four ways, they also cast lots for his coat because they didn't want to rip it. It really is a quite remarkable prophecy about the sufferings of Jesus. And if you just have a look at verse 19, we see the cry for help. Be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. And that again is a common theme in the things that the psalmist has to say about the sufferings of Jesus. Now, there's other psalms we we could go to. There's there's several psalms that talk about the sufferings of Jesus. Perhaps in passing we'll just have a look at Psalm 40. uh, Because you'll see the same themes extended that, that we saw there. And we're just going to pick up a couple of verses. Psalm 40 verse 11. And we're still with this same cry of Jesus for God to be with him and to help him. Psalm 40 verse 11. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold of me, so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. So is this this idea of Jesus crying to God for for help and support. And at the start of this psalm, Psalm 40, verse 1, we actually get the answer. It's interesting that sometimes the order is different when, when it's in prophecy. Because in Psalm 40, verse 1, we read, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. He had put a new song into my mouth. So here we see this cry of Jesus being answered. And it leads us on to the next thought that we have, and the next area we want to look at, which is Jesus' resurrection. Because in those first few verses of Psalm 40, we have this picture of someone being brought out of a pit or a grave and set on their feet and brought to life again. And that, of course, is the good news about Jesus, is that although he suffered terribly and died on the cross, he didn't stay there. But on the third day, he rose again. And the Psalms are very keen to to bring that before us as well. Um, come with me to Psalm 16, please. Psalm 16, and we're going to start in verse 8. We read, I have set the Lord always before me, because he at my right hand... I shall not be moved Therefore my heart is glad My glory rejoiceth My flesh shall rest in hope For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption Thou wilt show me the path of life In thy presence is fullness of joy At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore so here we have the psalmist talking in confidence, talking about being raised from the dead. Well, well, how do we know? Well, that's exactly what he talks about in verse 10. Because he says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. The word soul means my life or my breath. And hell is simply means the grave. It means a pit. It means a place where you go when you die. Nothing more than that. Now, that is, is is a very strong piece of imagery, isn't it? So was the writer talking about himself? Was this himself he was talking about? Well, keep a hand in Psalms and come with me to Acts chapter 2, please. Going into the New Testament, into Acts chapter 2. And here we're shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're with one of his followers, Peter, talking about... The resurrection of Jesus and just how important it is. Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. Now Peter, let's not forget, Peter was an eyewitness of the risen Lord. He met Jesus after he rose from the dead. And subsequently saw him go up into heaven. But look what he has to say, verse 29 Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David. He is dead and buried. His sepulchre is with us unto this day. So that's David, dead and buried. So He hasn't been raised from the dead, he's still there. And at the time he was saying, you can go and visit his grave if you, if you have any doubt. Verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet. Remember we said earlier on that the Bible talks about David as a prophet. He's an example of that. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So David knew that Jesus had a very special purpose. He, verse 31, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Let's read that very carefully. We're saying that David, seeing it before or foreseeing what would happen, talked about the resurrection of Christ. That's what David was talking about in Psalm 16. Peter's really clear for us. He really helps us understand what's going on here. And in case we were in a doubt, he gives us the reference, doesn't he? That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, says Peter. So Peter tells us quite clearly that David, in, in Psalm 16, was talking about Jesus... That his life was not left in the grave. On the third day he rose from the dead. And Peter and all those others were eyewitnesses that that had happened. So there we have one example of Jesus' resurrection shown to us in the Psalms. Will you come with me to Psalm 91 now? Let's see another example of this. And, and again we just have this similar language talking about the same events Psalm 91 verse 9 because thou hast made the Lord who is my refuge even the most high thy habitation there shall no evil before thee neither any plague come nigh thy dwelling He shall give his angels charge over thee. To keep thee in all thy ways. And see we see the care that God had for his son. And as part of that care he did not leave him in the grave. And verse 15. He shall call upon me. Well we read that didn't we. When we looked in Psalm 40 and Psalm 22. That Jesus would call upon God. God was his confidence. He shall call upon me. And I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. In human terms, Jesus was a failure. He died at the age of about 33. And yet we're told that he has long life because God did not leave his life in the grave but raised him from the dead. I want to move on again. And to think about Jesus as the coming king. You see the gospel writers they again give us the facts. They tell us that after Jesus rose from the dead. He was with his disciples for about 40 days. And he was teaching them. And he was preparing them for the work he was going to give them. Which was to go out and teach everybody they could meet. That Jesus was risen. And that there was a kingdom coming. They were also to tell people that. Jesus, having gone into heaven, was going to return to set up that kingdom. And that kingdom was going to be the kingdom of God. That kingdom will be on the earth. And perhaps now we shouldn't be surprised to find that this part of Jesus' role, which is still to happen, is also prophesied in the Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 110. You see, imagine the situation. Jesus Christ returns to the earth. And he says to the world, I'm now going to be the king of the world. I'm God's anointed king. And he is. It's unlikely that the nations of the world will take that lying down, as we should say. There will be conflict. There will be opposition. And in Psalm 110 and elsewhere, we actually see that opposition. Let's let's go in at the start of Psalm 110 The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's where Jesus is now. He sits at the right hand of God, waiting to be sent back to set up that kingdom. Until his enemies, we're told, be his footstool, be put under his feet. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Verse 5. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. So we're being told that yes in the establishment of this kingdom of God there will be opposition. And the rest of the Bible bears this out. But we're told that God will not tolerate that opposition. That he will empower the Lord Jesus to put down whatever opposition there is. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus coming to establish the kingdom of God. And not accepting opposition, but putting it down. Now, this is something that other Psalms talk about. Psalm 2 is a good example. But I'd like to move on to the conditions of that kingdom and Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, we're shown just how wonderful that kingdom will be. Now there are some that say this is the last psalm that David wrote. And if it is, it's a pretty wonderful place to finish a very large piece of work, a lifetime's work. Whether it is or not doesn't really matter. But this is a psalm that talks about what that kingdom will be like. And and in particular, it talks about the conditions of the kingdom we're really just going to highlight a few of them here. But this is another psalm that would really merit a very careful read. And picking up the details. Firstly we're going to see that there is justice and there is peace. Promised for everybody in this kingdom to come. He starts in verse 1. Give the king thy judgment O God and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment the mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness he shall judge the poor of the people he shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor this is a king ruling with fairness and justice in peace who doesn't let one oppress another because they're stronger than the other and that's what this kingdom will be like Come down to verse 12. He shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy. And save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence. And precious shall their blood be in his sight. So here we have a world where. The weak and the vulnerable are not oppressed but they're cared for. They're protected and defended. They're looked after and given justice. Well that's a world I'd like to live in and it certainly doesn't reflect the world we live in today. But we're told that's what the kingdom of God will be like under the Lord Jesus Christ. And whilst David lived in Israel, he was king in in southern Israel and then in in Jerusalem for a total of 40 years. The scope of the kingdom to come... It's very different. It will be worldwide. It will encompass all nations of the world. And it will last forever. And again this Psalm 72 gives us the evidence that 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 will be. Just have a look at verse 5. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations. This is not a temporary or a passing order. It's one that's going to last verse 7 in his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth yea verse, verse 11 yea all kings shall fall down before him all nations shall serve him you see this, this wonderful order will be worldwide. Such it includes all nations. And those who are in authority when Jesus comes back. And we believe that we very soon. Will also ultimately have to accept his rule. And all in the world will live in this place of peace. And justice and righteousness. Verse 17. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. Men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so in this picture of the kingdom to come, Not only do we see this righteous King Jesus ruling the world in that wonderful way, but we're told that this is also to do with the name and the glory and the power of God, and that Jesus will be ensuring that the whole world is filled with the knowledge of God, and with God's character and God's goodness. What a lovely picture of a world to come. And you could look at that in other Psalms, as we said, and we're going to sing it in our in our closing hymn. Uh, we're going to sing from Psalm 100. So what do we clu- conclude from all this? It, it's very clear that the prophecies tell us a lot about Jesus. And they give us detail that isn't perhaps included in the gospel accounts of his life. That's very interesting. Perhaps what's more important though is that those details and those prophecies came true. And because of that coming true... We can have confidence that the the other things David talks about and the other psalmists, such as this kingdom of God to come, will also come true. We can have great confidence that Jesus is just waiting to be sent to establish the kingdom of God on earth. So the question we have to answer is, well, what are we going to do about it? And I suggest we should be thankful that we have the psalms and they teach us the things they do. We should... Take time to read them, and the rest of our Bibles, and to take notice of their message. And let's take the time we have now to prepare to be ready for when the King, the Lord Jesus, comes back to the earth to set up his kingdom, so that when he does, he finds us ready and waiting for him. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristodelphians.org.uk.